Well, good morning. My name is Matt. Uh, it's good to see you at church this morning. Great that you could be here at Anchor. Uh, I just wanted to extend my welcome to those of you who are new or visiting for the first time. We really hope you're blessed by being here. We're going to be looking at Psalm 103 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open it up now. If you don't have one and would like to follow along, we've got some Bibles on the welcome desk and we'd love to give it to you as a gift. If you don't have one, take it home and read it. Otherwise, the verses will be on the screen behind me. So Psalm 103, we're going to go there now. I'm going to read it and we're going to unpack this verse. So we're ready? Yeah. Good. Let's go. Psalm 103. This is a Psalm of David, probably written by David or for David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, he flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone, and its place, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word. Obey, his, obey the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, my soul. Struggling to read that because I'm so familiar with that psalm in the NIV that as we've uh, switched to the ESV this year at Anchor, it's, it's a bit of a process to get used to the new language. If you know me at all, you will know that I'm a forgetful person. I forget lots of things. I think it's just because there is too much going in here and I can't keep it all in and so it just dribbles out all over the place. And so if you ask me to do something on a Sunday and it doesn't hit my inbox or a to-do list, it won't happen, I promise you. Day off is Monday and Tuesday is just way too long between Sunday to remember what you asked me to do or what the 10 other people asked me to do them. So I apologise if I've forgotten to do things. It's because I didn't email it to myself or put it in a to-do list. Um, just a forgetful person. But it's kind of always been like that, even when I wasn't busy, like in year 12 at school, because let's face it, I didn't study all that hard. I forgot the start time of my HSC chemistry exam and turned up 30 minutes late. They nearly didn't let me in the door. 
It wouldn't have mattered anyway because I just applied the molar theory to every single question that was asked. It was really only relevant for the first one. And if you did chemistry, you'll know how humorous that is. They ended up giving me a mystery mark. It's, you know, you get that mark, they say, you got a mark somewhere between 0 and 15, but we're not going to tell you because we don't want you to feel bad about yourself. I got one of those for chemistry. I remember a time when I was, um, we had this team leaders meeting for a camp that I was running and we had this big barbecue, get to know you and hang out and this new leader had arrived and I was introducing her to all the 25 leaders that were sitting in the living room and I thought, this is a dumb idea. She's not going to remember who these people are. But it's also a dumb idea because I got to this girl and I was like, I just couldn't remember her name. I just had this mind blank. I was like, you? And it was actually really embarrassing because she was a camper. She'd grown up on the camp. She became a leader on the camp. And I just forgot her name in front of a whole team of leaders. I felt bad for her. I felt bad for me as well. My uh, brother's best man forgot to come to his engagement party, just completely forgot. Thankfully, he made it to the wedding, but he missed the engagement party all together. I remember a couple of years ago, I was invited to preach at this church down in Menai, and we were invited to come and share our vision for planting this church, and we had some um, information on the table up the back, all these sign-up cards, and people could sign up to pray for us, or sign up to financially support us, or people wanted to join our core team, they could do that as well, and at the end of the night, I just kind of scooped everything into this box, grabbed our children, grabbed the pram, grabbed the box, headed out to the car. I put Judah in his car seat and I went to the boot and I put the box on the roof. I thought, don't put it on the roof, you'll forget it. I was like, I'm not going to forget it. It's like 10 seconds. Fold the pram up, put the pram in the boot, put the box in the boot and I'm done. Then anyway, we get home, I open the boot and I'm like, where's the box? It's like 10 10 seconds? Is that all it takes for me to forget? that I, I mean, I mentally reminded myself as well. It's, it's woeful. I, I wonder what the worst thing is that you have forgotten. There's plenty more for me. But you know, I want to suggest to you this morning that the worst thing I think you can forget is the gospel. Is to forget what God has done. You see, where does spiritual complacency come from? It comes from forgetting who God is. His character, His worth, His majesty. I wonder if you find yourself in that place where you are, are dull spiritually. What happened to that passion that you first had when you became a Christian? Maybe it's begun to fade. The answer to spiritual dullness is gospel remembering. And that's exactly what David does in this psalm, in Psalm 103. This is a psalm of, of pure praise. Last two weeks we've been camped out in, in psalms that were full of lament, of crying out to God. And in this psalm there is no lament, there's no sin, there's no confession, there's no babies being dashed against rocks. There is just praising God. This song is not sung in a minor key. It is all praise from beginning to end. And my hope is as we walk our way through it, we would be on the journey with David of praising God. So let's go back. Psalm 103 verse 1. This is how it starts. Bless the Lord, my soul, all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This psalm begins with self-talk. It's the head talking to the heart. And as David begins to sing this psalm, and, and sometimes we forget that these were sung. The psalms formed part of Israel's hymn book. This is part of their corporate worship. And so as David begins to sing this song, he's saying to his head, He's saying to his heart, come on heart, catch up, come on soul, 
Catch up with my lips because my lips are praising you. He wants all of soul, all of heart praise of God from his inmost being. And really, anything less is inappropriate, is it not? God deserves our deepest, purest affection and adoration. I love what Spurgeon says when he says, God's all cannot be praised with anything less than our all. God's all cannot be praised with anything less than our all. How can you praise God who is majestic and glorious and perfect and righteousness half-heartedly? How can you worship a God like that half-heartedly? It's inappropriate. And so David wants to stir his soul up, stir his heart up to match the words that come out of his mouth. And the reason this psalm works is because the head and the heart are connected. See, in in the scriptures, in, in Hebrew culture, the heart wasn't just the place of your emotions. It was really the center of your being, the center of your, your will, your desires, your, your emotions. All of it is caught up in the heart and it's all connected to the way you think. And so what, what David is doing is trying to connect those parts of his body and saying, come on, what is coming out of my mouth needs to be connected and stir up my soul to praise God. We were never meant to be people who simply just had heads full of knowledge, Old Testament or new. But that truth about God ought to have been accompanied with praise. And, and the other way around is no better. It's no better to praise God based on lies or no knowledge of Him. In the Scriptures, feeling and thinking go together. You cannot separate those two things. And so David is not satisfied with forgetfulness. He's not satisfied with just this knowledge. He wants all of his self to praise the Lord. Because worship of God in the end is ultimate. Worship is ultimate. It is the most important thing. It is the first and chief duty of the church. It is the purpose of your life. It is the reason that we're on mission. Why does mission exist? It exists because worship doesn't. Because people don't worship Jesus. We go and tell them what he has done for them. Worship of God is ultimate, that he would be glorified. I love what Tim Keller says about this psalm. He calls it praying our hearts hot in the presence of God. Isn't that that a wonderful image? Praying your hearts hot in the presence of God. And this psalm really is just a reminder upon reminder upon reminder of the truth of who God is that culminates in this massive crescendo of praise at the end of the psalm. Now my guess is we're not 100% sure and so it's just a guess that the context for this psalm is a season of, of forgetfulness, spiritual forgetfulness, of, of dullness or, or spiritual depression even. I wonder if you find yourself there this morning. What is the solution? It is to press the truths of God deep down into our heart and to pray them red hot like David does here. This psalm really is about not forgetting or remembering the Lord. And that word there, not forget, comes up in verse 2. And and we think of that word remembering and and for us it it takes on very different connotations. It doesn't just mean, oh, where did I leave the keys? I'm on the kitchen bench. That's right. It's not mentally recalling something. For the Hebrew, remembering means vigorous meditation. That's what it means, vigorously meditating on the things of God. 
It's a bit like when you go for your coffee. You go to whatever cafe you go to in the morning and you give your order to the barista and he gets his grinder out and he flicks it on and grinds those beans and out comes that beautiful ground golden goodness and he puts it in his coffee machine he presses the button and really hot pressurized water connects with those ground beans and out comes a cup of joy and that process of hot pressurized water pressing itself down through that basket is what David is trying to do in this psalm of forcing these truths into his heart and his soul that would erupt in praise and joy and you know I think if we're honest we we just don't do this enough ourselves to our own spiritual detriment I think we miss blessing and so what I want to do this morning is join David on his journey of overwhelming his soul with the blessings of God that would end up in praise I think David lists 17 things that he praises God for in this psalm and I've broken them up into four categories firstly for his benefits bless the Lord for his benefits bless the Lord for his character Bless the Lord for his immeasurable love and then bless the Lord for his unending love. And the point of it all is that we would praise God. So firstly, bless the Lord for his benefits. Verse 2, this is what it says. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all of your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles. He lists five benefits there of the Lord that he wants to remember. The Lord forgives, the Lord heals, the Lord redeems, the Lord crowns us with love and compassion, the Lord satisfies our desires with good things. Now, I reckon I could preach a whole sermon on just those five things. We don't have time to walk through all of them, so I'm going to camp out on the first one, forgiveness. Verse 2, he forgives all our iniquities. David remembers that God forgives his sin. Remember, this is the same man who, when he should have been out on the battlefield, was on his rooftop and he spied a pretty young lady called Bathsheba and he called her to him and he slept with her. She just so happened to be his most loyal servant's wife and in order to cover up his sin, he sent him to the battlefield and had him murdered. And then this is David who says in Psalm 51, Lord, wash me and I will be whiter than snow. David stops and he remembers the Lord forgives all of my iniquities, not just the little ones, the big ones as well. I wonder if you can remember your sin. Sometimes it does us good just to remind ourselves of where we've been and what God has redeemed us from, the sins we committed yesterday, today even, or, or maybe it's those sins that have left a particular scar on our heart. And to remember that Jesus has forgiven all of it. There is no sin too big that God cannot forgive. He forgives all of our iniquities. So quick we are to forget, to lose perspective. And it can be tough living in Sydney in 2015. There's a lot of first world issues that we face every day like my iPhone's button is kind of going so I've had to put that assistive touch thing on every now and then to make sure that I can still work and and every time I go to an app I've got to move it and it's really annoying and and then my iPhone's really slow because it's an iPhone 4S right I haven't upgraded in 
two whole iPhone times and it's really slow and, and it runs out of battery really quick. I've got to charge it like five times a day and then my internet at home is really slow. I can't even load a YouTube video. My Instagram won't load and it's just really frustrating living in Sydney in 2015 and, and we, we end up getting really frustrated about all these things until someone comes back from India, for example, and says, you don't know how good it is here. Oh yeah, and then we get that perspective back, don't we? I was talking to a friend of mine who recently spent... Uh, I think it was six weeks in South Africa. And I said to him, how was it? He goes, it was amazing. It was the most beautiful country I've ever seen. I said, did you feel safe? He goes, not a single day did I feel safe. You, you lose how good it is, how safe it is. We can leave our cars unlocked, park motorbikes on the street, and it doesn't get stolen in Australia. Or in South Africa, they just wouldn't be there. In fact, even if you're driving it, they'll still take it. And so we lose perspective so quickly. We forget how good it is. And I think we do that spiritually. We forget Jesus has forgiven my sin. I'm redeemed. I'm spotless. I'm perfect in the sight of God. Righteous. Have you forgotten how good it is that Jesus would forgive your sin? When was the last time you just paused? And remembered that truth and meditated on that truth and pressed that truth down into your heart. It's good, right? That Jesus... No, it's not good. It is breathtakingly magnificent that our sins are forgiven. And you know what? I reckon David could have stopped right there. Bless the Lord, he forgives my sin. Done. Psalm 103 has done its job at that point. But he doesn't. He continues with another 16 blessings of the Lord and... And I get the impression that he's doing that because he's trying to overwhelm his soul with what God has done for him. Stir his soul up. And if you're familiar with the phrase being caught inside, it's a surfing term. And it's that time when you're, you're, you're surfing and you're in that zone where you're just a bit too far from the shore to paddle back in and you're just a little bit too far out to get under the waves and you're in that zone when when the set comes the waves just dump straight on top of you and pushes you down and you pop up and there's another wave and the same thing happens like five or six waves until the set has gone through and, and I feel like that's what David is doing in this psalm it's just set after set, wave after wave after wave of blessing because he wants to overwhelm or drown his soul with how good God is and how worthy he is of worship. And so he says, bless the Lord for all his benefits. Secondly, he blesses the Lord for his character. This is the God that we worship. Check it out, verse 6. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. This is the God who rescues his people, the God who reveals himself. And in the background of these two verses here are some pretty major events in the life of Israel. The first is, is as, as God brought his people out from slavery, exercising justice for the oppressed, he brought them out from slavery under the Egyptians, under Pharaoh, and brought them through the Red Sea and cut off the, the, the ocean and, and destroyed Pharaoh and all the armies that were pursuing them. He released his people from slavery in Egypt. That's the first event in view here. And the second one is as the people walk into the desert, God meets his people on the mountain of Sinai and he reveals himself to Moses. In this cloud, this glory appears and so glorious is it that Moses has to cover his face with a veil as he goes down on the mountain to talk to the people. God 
rescues his people. God reveals himself to his people. And in verse 8, God reveals himself to Moses by preaching to him. God declares something of his character to Moses. It's called the proclamation. And God preaches this to Moses. This is what he says in verse 8. And so Psalm 3 here is really quoting Exodus 34. This is what it says. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, that is, rebuke, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Isn't that a relief? Isn't verse 10 a relief that God does not repay us according to what we deserve? Because if he did that for me, I'd be rotting in hell for all eternity. That is the blackness of my soul. We worship a God who is slow to anger. So unlike us. And all it takes, right, you're on the freeway to work and uh, there's a merging lane and someone pushes in, they cut you off and you lose it. I mean, they make you three seconds late for work, literally. It's literally three seconds. That's all it changes for you when someone pushes in and you lose your stuff and you're on the horn and out the window and, and it's ruined your day because someone made you, like, how quick we are to get angry and yet God is slow to anger, abounding in love. This is the God that we worship and He's not reluctant to love his people. He's not reluctant to show mercy and grace and kindness and favor. And you know what? The thing about these characteristics is it's not just what God does. It's who God is. This is the very core of his nature, that he is a God who loves, is gracious, is merciful. You know, when God preached those words to Moses in Exodus 34, his response was to fall flat on his face and worship God for who He is. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord for His benefits. Bless the Lord for His character. And thirdly, bless the Lord for His immeasurable love. He gives us three images here of the love of God. Have a look in verse 11 for the first one. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, I don't know if, if David really knew how far the edge of the universe was from the earth. And, and it does, does it really matter if he did? Because I don't even think modern science knows how far the earth is from the edge of the universe. Their best guess is that it is 47 billion light years away. The edge of the observable universe is 47 billion light years away from the surface of the earth. That is even if it has an edge. I'm not even sure if they know that much. The point is this. God's love is huge. So big. In fact, it's immeasurable. It's infinite. As high as the heavens are above the earth. As far as east is from west, so far has God taken our sin away from us. Now, what does he mean there? Does he mean that if you stand on one corner of the earth and were to circumnavigate it, would take you about 40,000 kilometers to, to do that trip? That's how long it is. Is he saying that's how far God has taken 
our sins away from us? Or, or is he saying that at any point that you walk around the globe, you don't get any closer to the point of West than you were when you started because West keeps moving with you? And I think that's his point. God has taken your sin infinitely away. This picture of, or both of these pictures really, are descriptions and symbols of the immeasurable nature of the love of God. It never runs out. It never dries. You cannot exhaust the supply of God's love. Like that fountain spring that just continues to produce water endlessly, the love of God is infinite. The third image we get there of the love of God is in verse 13. This is what it says. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. We move from these grand geographic images of the love of God to this personal relational image that he gives us here. This is a picture of what God's love is like. When you look at a father who cares and has compassion on his children, you get a little window into what the love of God is like. We've got two kids. Our eldest is Judah. He's just over two years old. And I can remember that time where he started to pull himself up on his cot. Um, He would wake up and he'd be crying. and, And as we'd come in, he'd stand up. And I remember this time I walked in. And as I walked in, I went to put my hand on the edge of the cot and he just stood up and he put his fingers underneath my hand and I pressed down and I squished his little fingers and he started screaming. What did I do? Toughen up, kiddo. No, I didn't do that. Why? Because I've got compassion for my child. This is what we did. It was probably a bit over the top. I picked him up. I'm cuddling him. I'm hugging him. I'm comforting him. Tash comes in. She's kissing him and a dummy and like, you know, because we've got compassion for our children when they're hurting. Even this image of a father here, I think, speaks of the immeasurable nature of God's love because it's not like my love for Judah runs out. I, I will love him no matter what. I will love my children no matter what. And, and even, even the best picture of a, an earthly father is but a dim reflection of what our heavenly father is like. But his love is immeasurable. Bless the Lord. Because his love has no end, no boundary. It never runs out. Lastly, bless the Lord for his unending love. Verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, that is, to their grandchildren, of those who keep his commandment and remember to do, sorry, to keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. In contrast with the people who are here today and tomorrow are gone. God's love endures from everlasting to everlasting, from the beginning of eternity, if that's possible, to the end of eternity. God's love is unending. And it is with those who fear Him and obey Him and worship Him, including, it doesn't just last a generation, He says, this love is with your grandchildren. You know, we sing all of these songs about the love of God, don't we? 
His love is relentless. His love never fails, never gives up, never runs out on me. We read verses like Romans 8 where it says, Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And my fear is that we sing and read those things and because they're so familiar, we become numb to those truths that God loves us immeasurably. You know, I think, um, well, this is my guess at least. It's probably wrong, but it doesn't really matter. Paul was, I reckon, reading Psalm 103 for his personal devotion the morning he penned the the letter to the Ephesians. Because in Ephesians chapter 3, he prays a prayer for the church and it seems to me that he's got this exact image in mind as he prays it. This is what it says, Ephesians 3, starting in verse 14, he says, I pray, then verse 17, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth that is of God's love. And to know this love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Friends, God has lavished His love upon us. He's poured His love out into our hearts. And so Paul's prayer is that even though God's love is almost inexhaustible and unknowable to an extent, He wants us to delve into it, to know God's love, to experience God's love. I wonder if that's your habit of pressing the truths about God into your heart, praying them red hot, vigorous meditation on the goodness of God. I reckon that's the best thing you can do for your faith. So here's an exercise for those of you who would find it helpful this week. Why not take Psalm 103 and write out every single blessing that David lists in this psalm and then meditate on each one of them individually. Go and find verses in the New Testament that correlate to it and then turn those verses and and applications into prayers and praise to our God. Vigorously pressing the truth of God into our hearts because I don't think just the fact that David is an Old Testament character doesn't mean that we can't do the same thing in the New Testament. We just do it with a different lens on. We do it with the lens of the gospel, the lens of Christ. And then we get to the end of this amazing psalm and it literally just explodes. Check out verse 20. This is what it says. Bless the Lord, O you his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. What begins with this personal call for David And his own soul explodes into this cosmic call for everyone, everywhere, to bless the Lord. Even creation itself. He's done such a good job of remembering how good God is, how worthy he is of worship and praise, that it's just expansive. It's not enough to have just his own soul praising the Lord. If this is the God that he worships, everyone needs to bless him and praise him. God is worthy of more praise. And true worship of God is always expansive like that. God is always worthy of more praise than you are capable of giving him. But here's a crazy thought. 
This kind of explosive, expansive praise of God is not actually for his benefit. That's not. You see, when God blesses us, we end up being more blessed. But when we bless God, he's no more blessed than he was when he first started. God is, as it says in 1 Timothy 4, 5 somewhere, he is the blessed God. That is who he is. He is blessed. He is happy. And so when we bless him and praise him, it doesn't expand his nature or his character any more than before we did that. So what it means is this kind of blessing and praise is actually for our benefit. It is simply an echo of his own excellencies back to him, a reflection back to him of how good he is. And God delights in it when his people do that. And it's good for our souls. You know, I think... There's a couple of really important implications for corporate worship as we look at this psalm. And I'd love to spend more time on these, but I'm just going to touch on a few of them here. And the first is passion. You know, as, as you read this psalm, you get the impression it wasn't sung with a bored look on the face, right? It just doesn't sound like it was sung like that. It sounds like it was a, a wonderfully upbeat, passionate praise song to God. Every fibre of his being, David says, all that is within me, praise the Lord. It seems that the praises of God ought to be filled with passion and excitement over what he has done for them. And, and connected to that is the idea of physical expressiveness. And I think David wants this sense. He doesn't want a disconnect between what's happening in his head and his heart and in his body. The Psalms are littered with expressions of falling down, of lifting of hands, of, of all of these things that involve our body. Maybe you've been at a church prior to coming to Anchor that um, maybe frowned upon any form of physical expressiveness. And we, we don't want that to be a part of our corporate worship here at Anchor. We want this to be a place where you feel comfortable to express physically what you are saying with your lips and your heart. You know, our vision for corporate worship at Anchor is this, and, and it's on the screen because it's it's so meaty. This is like, it's just such a heavy, packed sentence. And so I want to read it to you so you get what we're on about in this time. This is our vision. To lead people in corporately singing through a word ministry that is prayerfully dependent on the Holy Spirit to give us a true vision of who Jesus is and in turn ignite in believers' hearts the deepest and purest affections that gladly reflect back to him the radiance of his worth. Isn't that a good sentence? My brother Steve Vassallo spent many years poring over that vision and so thankful for his hard work. Or as John Piper says, he says, we want God to be seen, known and enjoyed as glorious. That's our hope for corporate worship, the time that we call singing and response in our church. The final implication I think that we can draw from this psalm for our corporate worship is that there are a number of focuses for our worship of God. There are four, in fact. There is an inward focus. There is an upward focus. There is a sideward focus. And there is an outward focus. Firstly, there is this inward focus that happens as we worship the Lord. There is David calling his soul to bless the Lord. And so he's not just sold out focusing completely on God. He's doing some work in his heart there. Come on, soul. Bless the Lord. May this be true in here, not just on my lips. There is an inward focus there. But there's also an upward focus because this whole psalm is about 
blessing God's name. It's, it's very much lifting his eyes to heaven, casting his mind back to what God has done and then blessing the Lord for it. There is an upward focus to this worship song. Thirdly, there is a sideward focus to this worship song. This psalm is not just written for David's personal worship of God. It's written to encourage the people of God. And so this song has a a sideward focus as well, that as we come together and sing as God's people, it ought to encourage each other. I don't know about you, but the most encouraging thing for me as I look around a room of worshipping people is to see people that look genuine with what's coming out of their mouth. That's encouraging. Now, it's not always an accurate indication of what's in the heart. And we don't want to mandate some form of hypocrisy at one end of this, the spectrum that overreacts from another hypocrisy at the other end of the spectrum. What we want is people to worship the Lord from the heart. And finally, the final focus of this worship is outward. David calls all people everywhere, every part of God's dominion, including creation, to bless the Lord. And so our corporate worship also has an eye to those who come or might walk past that don't believe in Jesus, that might see something that happens in here that makes God look glorious. And so there are a number of focuses to what we do on a Sunday, inward, upward, sideward, and outward. But maybe you're here this morning, and as you hear this stuff, you think, this means nothing to me. I don't understand any of these benefits. I don't feel like any of them are true for me. And that would be true because these benefits are for people who have faith. You cannot bless the Lord for a benefit that you have not received. And so, friends, if that's you this morning, then we would beg of you to receive these blessings of God. Let's just take that first one that we looked at, the blessing of forgiveness. The only way that God can forgive the sin of sinful people is that he would send his son to die on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus would take all of our sin, all of our shame upon himself and pay for it and die for it so that we could be clean, we could be righteous, we could be made whole, we could be given a fresh start. That is only possible because of what Jesus has done. Friends, if you do not know the blessing of having your sins washed clean. You don't understand what it means to be a Christian because that is the core of what it means to follow Jesus. Not trying to follow a bunch of do's and don'ts, but have a relationship with Jesus through faith in his death for our sins. If you don't know that, then we would love, love to introduce you to the Jesus who could wash your sin away. You know, Paul, as he concludes his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter that he wrote in chapter 15, he says to them, friends, I want to remind you of the gospel that I wrote to you. I want to remind you of the gospel. Now, why does he want to, is it that they've forgotten the gospel? Is it that they've, oh yeah, Jesus died for my sins, that's right. I don't think it's in that sense. I think what Paul wants to do there is remind them that the gospel absolutely radically and drastically changes everything about their whole life, including the way they think of what lies in the future, the resurrection. And so he wants to remind them of the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, and the resurrection of Jesus. Gospel remembering is a good thing. And so what I want to do as I close this morning is remind you of what God has done for you. What I've done is I've gone through the New Testament and I've tried to think of 
everything I could that describes what God has done for us. You ready? This is what he's done. He has saved you. He's rescued you. He's adopted you. He's predestined you. He's called you. He's justified you. He's sanctified you, reconciled you, and glorified you. He's made you righteous. He's forgiven you. He's loved you. He's redeemed you. He's set you free. He's made you whole. He's given you purpose. He's purchased you. He's opened your blind eyes. He's given you life. He's made you perfect. He's raised you up with Christ. He's made you an heir. He's given you the Holy Spirit. He's regenerated you. He's made you new. He's given you grace, mercy, faith, a living hope, a new family, a spiritual gift, a certain future, and he's holding on to you, and that's just the beginning. And what's our response? Bless the Lord. That's it. Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord for what he has done for us. And we're going to do that right now in two ways. We're going to remember the gospel in the symbols of the Lord's Supper. On these two drums out the front here is some bread and some grape juice. The bread symbolizes the body of Jesus that was broken. The bread symbolizes his blood that was spilled and shed for us. And so we invite you to come in your own time as you feel ready to come and and pick up the bread, dip it in the grape juice and eat it and remember the gospel. Remember what God has done. Press the truths of the gospel deep into your heart. And the other way we're going to respond is by blessing the Lord and worshipping him in song. And we're going to do that with the very words of Psalm 103 in the song 10,000 Reasons. So I'm going to invite the band to come up now as we prepare to press the truths of the gospel deep in our hearts, worship the Lord with four focuses in every direction. I'm going to pray for us and we invite you to stand as we come before God and worship him. So please stand, friends. Let's pray together. We you, Lord. We praise you this morning because you have been so good to us beyond what we deserve. Thank you for all that you have done for us, Father. Thank you that you forgive us. Thank you that you heal us. Thank you that you redeem us and you crown us with righteousness and compassion, that you satisfy us. Father God, you are worthy of all praise. I pray for anyone this morning, Father, in this room who feels spiritually dull or dry or complacent. Please stir them. Please stir all of us, Father, to wholehearted praise and adoration of you. Break down our pride and bring healing. May we delight in you, in your Saviour. And would you delight in our singing. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. God's people said, Amen.